This is Concepts, where two pretentious sirs quibble over ideas that explain today's world. Phil Shea and Steve Rose. All right, welcome to the Concepts Podcast. Welcome. (laughs) Today, we will be talking about the survivorship bias. Yes, we will. Which is, most people are familiar with in the idea, but maybe not in the term. Or maybe if they're not, this will be very useful. I don't think most people are familiar with neither the term nor the concept. Eh, I think they have a gut instinct that something's off when some people say these things, but maybe not. Yeah, we'll see. Okay, so define the term. It is a form of selection bias, which is Mm -hmm. a bias is just a tendency in one particular direction that skews whatever your findings will be. So in this sense, a selection bias is selecting a group of people to look at, but you're not choosing a a random sample. You're choosing like a bias sample that will lead towards a certain direction. It's like Pepsi asking Pepsi drinkers which they like better, Pepsi or Coke. Obviously, they're going to say Pepsi because that was the selection. So this is a sub group of that called the survivorship bias. And it goes like so, Mm. quote, the logical error of concentrating on the people or things that made it past some selection process and overlooking those that did not, typically because of their lack of visibility, end quote. Right. So I have the typical example. It's the one I want to start with because if you watch any videos on this, it's going to be videos or people talking about it. It's going to be the first one that comes up and it is insightful, but also this principle can be expanded a lot further. So I just want to kind of get it out of the way. All right. I will include photos. It's about planes in World War II. Oh, I saw that one. I love it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's good. So there's a picture. If you look up survivorship bias, it'll be the first thing that pops up. It's a yeah. overview of overtop view of a plane. And it shows a bunch of red dots, which are the spots where the planes have been shot. This is the data they collected from planes that returned from the battlefield and were shot to hell. What they were trying to figure out, and when it comes to plane design, you have to figure out a balance between armor so that it'll not be shot down, but also Mm. weight. You can't armor the entire thing or else the range you can fly in will be much more limited. Uh, So you have to pick and choose exactly where you want to put this extra armor to make sure that planes can get there, do their job, and get back without being shot out of the sky. Right. So pretty much they were trying to figure out where have these planes been shot that returned from the battlefield. We can identify where the most bullet holes are, and therefore we can try to protect those areas better so that future planes don't crash because they've been shot in those particular areas, correct? Right. Well, sort of. What they were trying to find was where do planes get shot that would bring them down? Yeah. More, what what areas need to be protected the most to keep planes in the air? Mm -hmm. And so they had a bunch of planes come back, riddled with bullet holes. And if you look at the picture online, it's at the tips of the wings, just behind where the cockpit is and the engines. Uh, The back middle section of the fuselage is left alone, and then the tail is shot a bunch. The engineers concluded at first that these would be the areas that would most need to be armored because they're the areas that are most shot up. But there's a flaw in this thinking. Put more armor on those wings and the tail because that's where all the bullet holes are. Right. And the the middle section of the plane, yeah. That's where all the bullet holes are. But the thing that they were overlooking, and this is survivorship bias in action, is that these places that were not shot, those are the places they should focus on because the places that are not shot are the places that if the plane were shot that, it would go down. Right. The survivorship bias is because the planes that made it back, those were actually bullet holes that the plane can continue to fly, obviously, because they returned. So those areas are actually the areas we should ignore. Mm-hmm. The places that are not shot are the areas where the planes were 
probably brought down as a result. So we need to actually yeah. do the opposite. The areas that are highlighted here are the areas to ignore and all the other areas are the areas to armor. Wasn't that interesting? It's almost counterintuitive in a sense because you almost you see all these bullet holes and think that's that's where we should protect. Mm -hmm. And isn't it interesting that the ones that came back for some reason there's no bullet holes on the engine? Yeah, what's with that? Or in the cockpit? (laughs) I wonder why. Well, (laughs) it's silly that this had to be. They had to discover this through that. It it seems obvious now, but that's okay. That's another Mm -hmm. bias, actually, which is hindsight bias. Hindsight bias, yeah. Knowing something, yeah, knowing something makes it seem stupidly obvious. This is why typically when I'm explaining psychological things to friends, I will annoyingly ask them to guess the results because if they guess, usually they'll guess wrong. And then when I tell them, they'll be amazed. Well, maybe it depends on the finding. (laughs) But (laughs) if... I just tell them, then they say, well, yeah, that's obvious. Right. Same, same thing, same example, different people, you'll get that kind of reaction. So, uh, always try to guess your instinct first before finding out the answer, because often it is not as obvious as you would think. Yeah. Cause now we can look at me like, well, obviously they should have protected the engine, but, uh, yeah. at that, t- at the time, yeah, you, you wouldn't have known. Exactly. How am I tying this into the Dilbert principle? Oh, okay. So <laughs> Uh, maybe I'll, I'll skip back to that. I was going to talk about the Dilbert principle and the Peter principle, but they're not entirely related. It's more, right. nah, maybe I'll, maybe I'll tie them in later. Okay. <clears throat> what did you find in, in your brief overview of this? Yeah, I guess that was the, the big example that stood out for me was the, the, the plane example. And it, it just highlights it so clearly of what's missing. And maybe a simple way to put this is that this is based on the unknown unknowns. We can have things we know, things we know we don't know, but it's the things we don't know that we don't know that fall into this this kind of selection bias particularly the survivorship one. I think the unknown unknowns comes to the audience when hearing these things, because like news reporting on stuff, you don't know what they're not telling you. Mm. Like most mainstream news organizations will not blatantly make up stories that would damage their reputation too much, but they will selectively exclude information. And I mean, it's not quite the survivorship bias, but it's, it's similar. But when it comes to research, they should be aware of this and see it. The people in the example we just gave for the planes, they are aware that not all planes make it back. They have less planes than they did Mm -hmm. before. So they have known unknowns, right? Or they would be a known known, I guess, at that point, because maybe not. I don't know. Anyway, (laughs) I want to tell another example about, um, well, it's not mutual funds per se. It's mutual funds and a, um, a stockbroker scam that they use in the mail. Go for it. So mutual funds, it's been shown that through statistical analysis, if you look at mutual funds and brokers, they do not outperform the general trend of the market. So if you were to invest in indexes, which are basically choices selected across the stock market, if the market overall goes up, then the indexes tend to go up as well because it's just a, not, it's sometimes a random sampling, but it's a wide sampling of maybe a subset or the overall market. So if something does bad, but most things do good, then the the overall index will still go up. So that outperforms on average, it outperforms brokers who claim to have expertise, who claim that this is their job, who actively manage your funds on a daily, weekly or monthly basis. And these people who spend all day looking at these things don't perform any better than if you just did nothing and stuck them into indexes, which is infuriating when you do the math to see how much money they're actually taking from you. So that's that. People kind of liken it to a bunch of people flipping coins and then having, say we, we prize people who flip heads 
minutes for doing a bunch of iterations. We have a thousand rounds of people flipping coins. And the person in the last competition, there's two left and they're both about to flip again. They, they interview both of them and say, wow, you guys are amazing coin flippers. How, how do you do this? What do you eat for breakfast? What is your training regimen? And obviously this is complete bullshit. We shouldn't be respecting them in any way. They're just the survivorship bias in practice. Right. So we praise these uh, stock market millionaires for being genius investors. When you're saying in reality, it's the ones that got lucky and survived and thrived in, in these circumstances that we we ask, what personal characteristic did they bring to that table uh, in not looking at uh, the rest of the people that didn't make it? And perhaps looking at those that didn't make it will tell us more about how to succeed in this type of realm in the same way that looking at the planes that didn't make it, which is impossible because they've blown up and crashed and you can't really analyze them anymore. But uh, it's, it's that same idea that we tend to, to focus on the one that did make it. Yeah, I think you take it a little too far there, though, because in this example, for coin flippers, there's nothing to learn from the rest. There's nothing. Basically, the only thing to learn is that it is not skill. It is just we did enough different times trying the same thing. And eventually somebody's going to come out on top. But it's not to the, the their virtue. It's just because they were just lucky. Like it's pure luck. Right. So on, on the extreme end, that example sounds a lot like the gambler's fallacy when people believe they have more control over random outcomes mm. and they look for patterns and, and, and that don't necessarily exist. Uh, th- that's not the game. The gambler's fallacy is specifically believing that past events will influence future events. So if you flip heads a bunch of times, they believe that the chance of tails goes up every time heads shows up. They're, they're related, but right. it's obviously a faulty way of thinking because it's not. that's not how reality works. Reality does not average things out on purpose to make things even. <laughs> it doesn't care. Yes. There's no yes. cosmic being doing this. I mean, unless you're super religious, then I guess you probably wouldn't be listening to this anyway. This leads me to a scam, actually. This is something to be aware of. Why can't super religious people listen to this? <laughs> they can. It's just, I, I, I don't know. I guess if you're super, if you're that super religious, you're probably not super into science, I would guess, because it often would contradict it. Though, you can still be religious and believe in science, of course. Never mind. This is this is all a sidetrack. Let's not get into religion. <laughs> so going to the scam, this is something to be aware of because this has been propagated a bunch of times and I'm sure it's still going on. Essentially, there will okay. be a person who wants to present themselves as somebody who understands markets and who can manage your funds well. They're trying to attract people to invest in things that they want to invest in or at least to improve their holdings because a lot of these brokers make money on a percentage basis. So they get a certain percentage of the amount of funds under their control. Mm -hmm. And so the more funds, the better, obviously. So what they do, some of these guys or girls don't, let's not give guys the corner on the scamming market. So they have a scam where they send out, (laughs) they send out like, let's say a million letters to people, half of which say stock X will go up and another half will say stock X will go down. Of course, it could say the same. It's unlikely to do so though. So let's say, let's say it goes down. So they lose the half that say that they said it will go up with, but they still know who they send what to. So the people that they sent the letter saying it'll go down to, they send another letter saying it's going to continue going down to half the group. And then the other half, they say, no, now it's going to go back up. So then whatever happens, happens and half the group is weeded out again. And they continue doing this until they seem like, holy shit, this person is basically psychic. How do they know? Well, they didn't. They're just guessing and you have no idea how many people they said this to. I see a survivorship bias playing you. Really? How shocking given the topic. (laughs) In other areas in the financial domain, well, more in the business domain, this is actually funny enough. It's a quote by Michael Shermer from Scientific American and Larry Smith of the University of Waterloo. 
My fellow alumni who went there, uh, many of them may... Your old stomping grounds. Yeah, many of them may know Larry Smith because one is a very generic name. No offense, Professor Smith. But he was one of the most favored... uh, I can't remember if it was finance or econ or business, but one of those areas, he was one of the most favored professors because he was just so entertaining. So uh, they described how advice about commercial success distorts perceptions of it by ignoring all the businesses and college dropouts that had failed along the way. Journalist and author David McRaney observed that, quote, the advice business is a monopoly run by survivors. When something becomes a non-survivor, it is either completely eliminated or whatever voice it has is muted to zero, end quote. You will also recognize this one. The Black Swan, author Nassim Taleb, has called this silent evidence. Very interesting. Silent evidence. I like that. Any thoughts come up to you along this way or am I going to keep monologuing? Well, what's coming to mind is what happens a lot in research uh, when you're trying to publish in an academic journal. It's easier to publish if you have findings that are positive findings are positive. Yeah. And then it shows something and the study succeeded. And if you don't have positive findings, they won't likely publish it. And therefore, we don't learn from the negative findings. And so, oh man, don't get me started on that because, like, I've ranted about this in the past when it comes to the scientific findings. You have. Uh, I'll, I'll make a distinction also for those listening. Positive doesn't necessarily mean good, it just means the presence of something. So, in this case, it would be research that right. finds something as opposed to research that shows there's nothing there. Yeah. Like, if you're trying to find a correlation between X and Y variable, if you say, if the study concludes, yes, there is a strong correlation between X and Y variable. Therefore, we have learned something about society. This is kind of a sociological bias one. Yep. And so that would, people would say, wow, we need to publish that. There are positive findings. There's something here we can see. Now, somebody who pub- who does research on correlation between X and Y variable, and there's no correlation between the variables, there's just nothing there, it doesn't present as a very interesting study, and therefore the journals are less likely to publish that type of a finding, and we don't learn from the silent evidence. Yes, negative knowledge is still knowledge, and I find this, I mean, yeah. on the one hand, yes, we want to maximize the amount of funds going into research to, sh- to show something, to find something, but however, if there's a common belief about something, and we find that it's it's shown to be not there or not substantiated, that is equally important. And so for me, I believe that there should be some sort of independent third body that goes through big findings and reruns the experiments if possible and shows whether it's uh, replicable or not, because that's that's actually a huge problem that happened in much research recently with the whole replication crisis. I was just about to mention that. Yeah, the the replication problem in psychology has been huge right now. And would you want to kind of get into that? I don't know if it was just psychology. I think it was a lot of the social sciences. Basically, what was happening was something called p-hacking. So I'm I'm kind of weak when it comes to statistical analysis. But from my understanding, the p-value is the value that you set to make sure that the findings you found are not the survivorship bias. They're not just by chance. So if... There's actually an experiment that's relevant to this that I have was going to mention later on about this guy who was trying to find um, extrasensory perception, aka psychic individuals, and he got people to guess what was on this special kind of cards. And I think there was like a limited number of options, but he ran this iteration so many times that he thought he discovered psychically sensitive people, but it turned out that it was most likely just the survivorship bias of some people. Everyone was guessing and just some people happened to guess more, more accurately by chance. But the replication crisis is kind of similar to that where people were saying that his findings were just by chance and what happened more recently in the field was that 
Well, you have this data, right? And so you're thinking, well, there might be something to be found in here. So they might, after the fact, after the research has already been done, they might start playing with the ideas and they might start saying, well, what if we look at just this group or just that group? And they keep fiddling around with it until they find something that appears significant in, in the, the research. So that's one problem that happened. Because uh, again, we only reward people who find something and not people who disprove something, mm-hmm. even though both are still knowledge. Yeah. The P hacking thing was people might widen the, the value of the P. So, so P is typically set at, I think, point, 0.05, So 95% confidence interval type of thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So they would say that if with that, if you use, use that figure in your, your calculations, then there would only be a 5% chance. So a one in 20 chance that this particular finding was a result of, of random yeah. chance. And that's generally accepted as the standard practice. Yeah. But I think some people were widening it just a wee bit, which like maybe they said, of 6% or 7%. I don't know how high some people went. I'm sure they probably pushed it a little bit too far. Mm -hmm. But even just expanding it by those few percentile, if you do that, and then you're like, oh, look, it is significant now at 6%, then chances are that by having to widen that interval a little bit further, you're probably making it so that insignificant findings are now significant. So that that was an issue that psychology had to reckon with, I think, in the past half a decade. Mm -hmm. For sure. And so it's almost like we're just reinforcing things that we we think to be true already. So we just are strengthening things that we think we know and not being critical of those things that we think we know. Yeah. Like knowing that X and Y do not have any impact on each other could still allow us to know that, okay, that's unlikely that that's a factor affecting this. Mm. So we can still rule out stuff as a result. Like if I know that X medicine doesn't treat this disease, this should still come into play because then you would know, okay, that medicine acts on these receptors or this mechanism. So then other medicines by that same mechanism have a lower chance of working. And then if you find one that does work in the same mechanisms that actually helps that same disease, then you would still know something because you're like, whoa, whoa, what's going on here? Like that one doesn't work and this one does. So something something extra, there's some other mechanism happening yeah. and we can dig deeper into that. And this is not to say that negative findings are always ignored. You, you could find plenty of examples in the research where there's no correlation or the right. this medicine is not effective or has no, has no effect on the other variable. So you, there's plenty of examples where this, you can find this. The problem is yeah. how likely it is to, for those findings to be published versus kept in the desk drawer. Well, further than that still is funding, because if you keep finding negatives, then you are, again, still furthering human knowledge mm-hmm. overall, but you will lose your funding. And that's that's the motivation there to cause people to possibly commit academic fraud right. is that they need to survive. They need to have money. And this is why I think, well, I mean, this is going to this is going to happen no matter what in some areas. But I think we should definitely put more public funding into science because Sometimes stuff like this needs to happen. We need to know this stuff because like research in actual, say, corporations and stuff, they don't tell us that they have no obligation to tell us that. So they often don't show their failures. Yeah, exactly that. And so public funding, people are not familiar with research. It comes with uh, fewer strings attached as compared to private funding where the the private interests wants you to actually come up with something. They want, they want to show that their drug is effective 
And and so it's not necessarily saying that uh, these researchers are are frauds, but there is there's for sure some strings attached to that funding where you may be more likely as a researcher to just not publish the negative finding. It's not to say that you're engaging in fraudulent research or hacking the p-value. You could be, uh, but uh, it, let's say the study's finished and there's nothing found, then maybe you just don't publish and you do another study uh, changing some of the variables so that you, when you do find something, the company that's funding it is, is happy with that and they'll continue funding. Yes. And this is actually rampant in the food industry currently because they found that research funded by the industry had a, I think the example I had was for sugary sodas, whether it was beneficial or detrimental to your health drinking a certain amount. I don't remember the exact findings, but of the independent research done by actual research facilities, I think four out of six found it was unhealthy, four out of six studies. And then in the actual funded research, sorry, other way around, it was 10 out of 12 found that they were unhealthy. And then in the funded research by the industry, they found four out of six said it was neutral or good. So clearly they have a reason to try to convince us to drink their shit. But it seems that when we have unbiased people testing it, it seems to work in the opposite angle. So we have to be very careful with that. I personally think that we should be pushing for big neon signs whenever it is industry funded. If there's mm -hmm. any connection to the industry at all, it needs to be completely aware. We need to be made aware of that at the first and foremost. And there should be penalties or fines uh, if they don't. Don't. As well, I think we should mandate that they have to, they should have to publish research regardless of what they find. That's a bit more of a sticky area because of like freedoms yeah. and such. But I think if we want to have a more complete knowledge and not allow corporations to get away with shit, then that would be something we should go after them for if they're found to do research and then destroy it when it doesn't come up in their favor. Yeah. That should be punished exactly. or punishable. Exactly. Final point before I got my soapbox. <laughs> I believe that a publicly funded research should be publicly available for anybody to access because there are such things as citizen scientists, such as yourself, you or me, I guess, if we're, we would like to do research and be able to write, like look at the, the funding, but sometimes it's like $60 for a paper trick, by the way, most researchers have the ability to, and would be happy to give you their paper if you just email them. Yeah. So go skip these middlemen, screw that paywall, go directly to the source and they will give it to you mm -hmm. most likely. Yeah. So you off your soapbox? I'm off my soapbox and I was actually hoping we could okay. tie this into more everyday examples. Let's do that. All right. So everyday examples, Whoop, just bought my mic. Okay. So everyday examples, the most common one I come across is the, the elders saying back in my day, did you read that Instagram, not Instagram, uh, Tumblr screenshot that I sent you? I hope not. No. Why? Okay. Then I'm going to, I'm going to read it. Okay. It's a, it's chock full of examples of exactly what we're talking about, but more outside the domain of science. So more what people might actually come across. So <clears throat> quote, by, I don't know how to say their name. You'll, you'll find this in the show notes probably or a link to it at least. Uh, okay. So quote, you ever think about how old people have no idea what survivorship bias is and take full credit for being excellent out of things where they lucked out <laughs> back in my day. We didn't have any of these childhood protective things. We were smart enough to not do stupid shit on our own, except your little neighbor who got the funniest idea at the age of seven and got his skull pierced when he slipped. Back in my day, nobody got divorced. We stuck together and fixed our problems. What about your cousin who was slowly killed by her husband because she had nowhere to escape him? Ooh. Back in my day, nobody had mental health problems. We didn't whine. We just toughed it out and endured life. Hey, you remember that guy you used to work with who seemed really friendly and normal and then he suddenly hanged himself for no reason? Back in my day, we didn't have any of this gay or transgender thing. Yeah, you did, but your family cut all ties with them before you were even born. Mm -hmm. And then they say, basically, you, you kind of start seeing it in everything they think if you start looking for it. And another person gave another example. 
When we were kids, nobody whined about car seats or bike helmets. We didn't use them and we all survived. Yeah, except for the ones who didn't. <laughs> yeah, that's that's so that's hilarious. It's so true. I have a list at the end of this that <laughs> go into examples I can think of or oh. that were part of the Wikipedia page. Uh, I can shotgun them later. I love I love those that list. And is that why we think uh, cars were built better back then? Because only the ones that oh, thank were you. built good. Yeah, only the cars that were built well are still surviving, and you're able to drive them to bit today. Yes, we, we don't see the flaming wreckage of the past. Exactly. Okay. So this, that is literally the next headline I have here is quote, they don't make them like they used to end quote. Yeah. They don't make them like they used to. <laughs> no, that's, that's a belief, but this is actually something called the bathtub curve. Have you heard of this before? No. Okay. So there's something called early infant mortality failure, and this is not babies, but it's to do with the infancy of a technology or a device that's been manufactured. There are actually three times that these things are more likely to wear out. First is early infant mortality. So depending on the device we're looking at, within the first few months, a high percentage of things that are going to fail will fail then. If they survive past the first couple months for most devices, then you're entering the lowest part of observed failure, which is only due to basically random failures. It's a constant rate of failure for all devices that's just present no matter what. Mm -hmm. And then finally, when it's getting old, things start to wear out and that's why they fail. So again, it's device specific but the curve looks like a sloping kind of bathtub, a shallow bathtub. It's encompassing all failure rates. So the overall failure rate starts very high at the beginning. It goes down in the middle of slumps and then at the back end, it kind of mirrors the high points from the beginning. But the first part is because of things breaking early. The middle not reaching zero is because there's always a rate of failure. And then at the end is because things start wearing out. Mm-hmm. All the things that were terrible broke early, and then anything yeah. that makes it past that is likely to survive until the time when it starts to wear out, like the cars you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. So all those like uh, 1980s Toyotas that you randomly will see still driving around, we think, oh, they, they don't make them like they used to. Those cars are built to last. And, and maybe, maybe <laughs> particularly, yes. But uh, what about all the others that didn't? But also those are probably the ones that may have been taken off the road during the winter, didn't get in an accident by chance, because that's that's one of the constant random failures for cars. Also, I think it's a misconception sometimes because people believe, I've seen people say this, and these are often guys who like cars. They see two cars get in an accident. One of them crumpled like shit and there's just pieces of plastic and whatever it's made of all across the, the road. And then there's the other one, like an old caddy that is still one big piece. It's just a monolith. That thing was stable and sturdy, man. Yeah. But do you understand why why the second, the Cadillac, is actually inferior? Well, that's well, that's driver safety because you want to be in a car that absorbs the shock. You don't want to be in that brick. Yes. Yeah. The brick stayed stable, which transferred all the force inside to the passenger, yeah. which is exactly what you do not want. Okay, great. Yeah. Your car is intact, but now you have internal hemorrhaging, hemorrhaging and brain damage. Not great. So survivorship bias of the car. So the people weren't surviving, but the car did. <laughs> maybe. Yeah. In that case, maybe for sure. Oh. I have a quote for the bathtub curve quote. The failure rate is high, but rapidly decreasing as defective products are identified and discarded and early sources of potential failure, such as handling and installation error are surmounted. In the midlife of a product, generally speaking for consumer products, the failure rate is low and constant. In the late life of the product, the failure rate increases as age and wear take their toll on the product. Many electronic consumer products life cycles strongly exhibit the bathtub curve. I got it. So I wanted to move from that to planned obsolescence. So again, the whole, they don't make it like they used to. They might be referring to planned obsolescence. This is going to be the 
first counter I think people are going to have if we refer to all these things as survivorship bi- or um, yeah, survivorship bias. Some stuff was legitimately made better in the past. Yeah. I think microwaves are an example of that, right. if you're familiar. Uh, I'm not familiar with that particular example, but... I don't know if it's true. I just know my parents have talked about it, how modern microwaves, they start losing power year over year, and they only tend to last maybe five-ish years. Whereas older microwaves, they are still full-powered now and continue to work well. My parents have a really old microwave that works better than their newer microwave. This could just be survivorship bias or it could be a difference in manufacturing <laughs> practices. It's hard to say. Yeah. But planned obsolescence is actually a thing. And so here's, I wanted to quote something for that. Quote, planned obsolescence tends to work best when a producer has at least an oligopoly. I'll explain that in a second. Before introducing a planned obsolescence, the producer has to know that the consumer is at least somewhat likely to buy a replacement from them. See brand loyalty. Mm-hmm. In these cases of planned obsolescence, there is an information asymmetry between the producer who knows how long the product was designed to last and the consumer who does not. When a market becomes more competitive, product lifespans tend to increase. For example, when Japanese cars with longer lifespans entered the American market in the 1960s and 70s, the American car makers were forced to respond by building more durable products. End quote. So exactly what you were talking about with those Japanese vehicles. I think they actually were, in this case, it seems they were actually were made better than the American ones at that point. Exactly. So looking at that particular Toyota example, yes, it's made better. And it doesn't mean that cars were all made better back then. It just means that particular survivor was. Yeah, exactly. But I think Toyota is actually an interesting example. I remember they've been brought up in a few books uh, I've looked at where they actually, they put the importance of making something high quality first, the first time, Mm -hmm. a higher importance. So like American manufacturing at that time, at least, they would keep pushing through products. If there's a fault, whatever, we'll discover it after the line and then we'll reimburse and deal with it afterwards. But just get it out there, get it out the door. We're just, we're, we're making a lot of these. So just keep putting it out. We'll fix the ones later. Mm. So a higher rate of um, infant mortality. Whereas the Japanese method, the Toyota method, I think it was specifically, and this was brought up because of cultural conflict. They bought, I think, Chrysler, former Chrysler plants in Michigan. And they were trying, I think Detroit specifically, and they were trying to make those work despite the fact that Chrysler had somehow operated there and couldn't make it solvent. Japan decided they could do it. And so what they did with the exact same employees, they hired back everybody that was on the line and they decided they were going to teach them the, the Toyota method. This is all hazy memory because I remember reading this maybe five years ago. So what they had in that line was they basically said, if you have a problem, pull this rope whatever it was, they had a signal that would stop the entire line. Wow. The entire line of production would be stopped. And the problem was that Americans, they thought they were going to get in trouble for this because American management would get them in shit. Why did you stop the line? You're costing us so much per minute, per second, just by stopping this line. So what do you think you're doing? But the Japanese, at least the Toyota company, believed that by making a higher quality product, it made a better impression for brand loyalty. They would cost less on having to do recalls. They wouldn't have to reimburse people for like the warranties and all that. And so they, I guess, figured out that it was actually cheaper for them to make it better first. Mm. So they kept having employees, the American ones, not pull the lever because they didn't want to stop the line. They felt guilty. Like it wasn't, they weren't important enough to bother doing this. And I can definitely relate with that in some of the jobs I've had. Right. By training them to do that, people had took more ownership over their work. They actually had more pride in the outcomes. They felt like they were doing something better. And so productivity actually ended up going up. And Toyota turned these same people who, I think Chrysler, I don't want to drag Chrysler through the mud. It might have been Ford. One, this American car manufacturer had said, these people are untrainable. We can't use them. 
just get rid of them <laughs> and Toyota prove them wrong. Yeah. Like some ownership has to be taken by management and the corporation itself instead of just blaming people. Right. Yeah. I think uh, that relates to the concept of Kaizen. Maybe we can talk about things like that in the future. Yes. Yeah. Kaizen is something I like just to briefly summarize it is always trying to be better. Obviously that is something you yeah. and I both prescribe to. Yeah. yeah. Maybe we can do a, do an episode on that one sometime. Yeah. Or we could just release our past podcast attempts because we already recorded an episode on that. Garbage. Garbage. I don't know if it's garbage. I want to revisit it. We can take clips and we can talk about it. Yeah. It was a few years ago and we were, we, we couldn't speak back then for some reason. Well, we can take clips and then we can respond to them. Yes, we'll do it. Okay. So I, I mentioned an oligopoly there that um, planned obsolescence works best in an oligopoly. Yeah. So pretty much I'm going to, can I put that in simple language? Uh, it sounds very complicated. Um, I was just about to do that. <laughs> okay. You, you go for it. Go for it. What, do, what are you going to put in simple language? It sounds like that means in simple language, if you believe you own the market, then you can plan for your stuff to break down because people are going to buy your stuff more. Yeah, you have control, but um, that sounds like a monopoly. So yes, monopolies can also do that. But an oligopoly is similar, but it's more like there's only only a small handful of places that'll actually sell it. Yeah. And I guess we're in North America or the world really at this point. Most products are owned by, I think, a handful of corporations. <laughs> So we already are living in a, an oligopoly of sorts. What's an example of a company that does this? I, I know there's, I, I think of a lot of them. I can't think of a specific one right now. One that does plan obsolescence? Yeah, that, that specifically makes their products inferior so that they break and they'll Apple. need a new one. Apple, okay. But Apple has a reputation for high quality. Apple has a reputation for high quality for their new products. Problem is the long, time, long term is that they've been caught multiple times, I believe, and penalized like basically slap on the wrist as typical. They've been caught purposely slowing down older phones and making it so that you feel the, the urge to buy a new one. No way. Your old phone would continue to function fine, but they actually put in software to slow it down. Ooh. I know they've been caught in this. I, I don't have any research in front of me at the moment, but they've had a couple times where they've had to, to pay for people to do to have stuff replaced or I can't remember what kind of punishments they had, but I remember them being basically nothing for a company of that size. So yeah, they, they, they have a corner in a sense because people believe that Apple is different. It is its own unique thing. It's not just any phone, blah, 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 all their branding. If you're an Apple person and you basically know what I'm talking about because the fact that you define yourself by this brand uh, kind of <laughs> demonstrates that. <laughs> <laughs> so you're going to keep buying Apple and they know that, which means they essentially have a monopoly on the people who are avid Apple fans. Yeah. And again, they do well on their new products. It's just that as you keep it, if you're one of those people that keeps up on the new stuff, then you won't notice this. But for somebody who doesn't want to update their phone every year, paying it like a thousand and upward for a phone, you will start to see this over a couple of years. And it's not just that apps are getting bigger and more unwieldy, which they also are. Mm. It's also because the manufacturer is doing something to make you feel like you need to update. Mm. Very interesting. Very malevolent. Uh, I mean, it's just business. Okay. So this is the problem. It's just business. There, a corporation is not meant to be ethical. When a corporation says it's going to do ethical things, it's only doing that because it believes that the market will respond to that. People believe, okay, it's good for business. if they start yeah. saying they're doing a green initiative, it's not because the company gives a shit about being green. Yeah. It's because they believe their audience will like it, right? Yeah. It's good for marketing. Good for business. Yeah. Yeah. But they can change that on a dime. It doesn't, as long as they feel that they'll have an audience that will like it. But then we've got outrage marketing, which is kind of something altogether different. But I view corporations the same as politicians. They say they're, they're selling something. They're selling an idea and they're hoping that you'll like that idea and be more likely to relate with them. Hmm. But that doesn't mean they have to 
actually deeply hold these beliefs and they often don't. So the solution then is to compel them with real punishments to do the right thing. That's the purpose of government. Corporations, I mean, I see a push lately that we need to get corporations to be more socially accountable. But the thing is, we shouldn't do that just because like of a movement, we should mandate that they be more accountable. Great. You're doing this on your own. Good job. You don't have to worry about it because we're going to change the legislation to make everybody fucking do this thing. Uh, I'm going to cut that out. Anyway, <laughs> I, I, I basically like because people say like capitalism's evil. Capitalism is just a system that helps us make new stuff very quickly. And I think we just need to get the right incentives in in order to make it work better. I don't think throwing it out is going to be the solution. And that's a topic for another day. And, and so this relates to survival bias because the corporations that do succeed will will praise that corporation or even a CEO like Steve Jobs, for example, mm, yeah. or someone in those positions as uh, some kind of genius, and they may be, and there may be elements of truth to that. And it, it, you can see how survivorship bias plays into some of the, the motivational field of motivational speaking from successful CEOs or people that have made it, and we hold them up as... High competition careers. Yeah, yeah. So do you see it? Did like, is there anything that came up in your research related to the survivorship bias regarding the motivational speaking field and how we pull inspiration from these people that did make it? Oh, I have a ton of examples. I, I was through all the other stuff I have to say about it. And I just right now have a bunch of examples from various fields. That was the second point I had. Uh, high competition careers. These are pulled and whittled down from Wikipedia as well as like one or two of my own. The one you just mentioned was high competition careers, movie stars or athletes or musicians or CEOs of billion dollar corporations who dropped out of school. Popular media often tells a story of the determined individual who pursues their dreams and beats the odds. But the thing is, we are not seeing all the people who are going for those things and did not make it anywhere and we didn't hear about at all. Right. So exactly what you're talking about. Another one I found interesting was architecture. Oh. So people like to say stuff like classical architecture was more beautiful or just was really built to last. This reminds me of the car example. The what? The car. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The car example. Yeah. They made it better back then. Yeah. Well, that's what they think. Like, oh, like, oh, all the architecture back in like ancient Greece was beautiful. Meh. Maybe. Or maybe just the ones that people liked better. They didn't tear down. <laughs> exactly. Or the ones that are better quality survived over all of the years. And, and so the, the survivorship bias right there. Yep. But yes, I like the example that you said that we, we protect the things we perceive as beautiful. And I would be very curious to see what the average architecture in ancient Greece looked like. I'm assuming that people didn't live in homes with white columns and all of the rest of what we imagined to be Greece. Oh, uh, no, actually, if you look at the marble statues back in the day, they were they were painted really bright, gaudy colors. They were not bleached as they are now, which was from the sun and other influences. They actually were really disgusting colored that we would probably think was ugly, frankly. So that's that's a thing. And but what the but what about the average house, like the average Greek citizen? What kind of architecture was happening in, in the average home? I guess we'll never really know. But another hangover from that time was actually <laughs> just going to throw this in was how wine is now considered to be high, high culture. Ooh, I love that. Do you know about this whole thing? Yeah, I love this type of discussion. Keep going. <laughs> OK, so the Greeks were seen at that time as like the height of culture. The Romans were more of a warlike people. They didn't have a very strong culture in terms of like arts and philosophy and such. 
the Greeks were, I mean, even now regarded as being pretty amazing for that at that time. Though I think that only lasted like maybe 10 to 25 years. It was a, a really short golden age, but really productive. Mm-hmm. Anyway, they drank a lot of wine, but they drank a lot of wine only not because they thought it was better than anything else, but because they could grow grapes easily at that time. And grapes have a lot of sugar content. So they just made wine all the time. The Romans, seeing the Greeks as being more cultured in general, believed that wine was specifically more of a cultured drink. And because the Romans were the ones that ended up taking over and our culture kind of stems from them. Yeah, Greco-Roman. Yeah, we have this kind of hangover that wine is this refined flavor for refined tastes. It's just fermented wine. Fermented grapes. Yeah, fermented grapes. It's just grapes gone putrid in a way that we controlled and can still consume. That's literally all it is. Enjoy it. It's great. That's a good question. Yeah. What makes wine classier than beer, for example? They're both fermented uh, things uh, that uh, we can consume as an alcoholic beverage, but we we have attached this cultural significance to the wine, and that's and that's why. Well, this, I mean, the same reason we see wine as more of a feminine drink or like sweet drinks is that, and beer is a more manly drink. Why is why is alcoholic bread soda a <laughs> manly drink it doesn't make any sense mm-hmm. basically it seems like the manly drinks are just ones that are more harsh tasting if it's sweet then it's feminine for some reason but those quote-unquote girly drinks uh they tend to have a higher alcohol content maybe exactly. one of those is like three beers beer is like five percent wine it gets into like like 12 percent teens yeah exactly yeah. so I don't know. I don't even know how this relates to survivorship bias. It doesn't. We kind of went on a little tangent there. But <laughs> next one I had was uh, investing. We've already kind of talked about that, but they often portray successful investors as like deeply insightful geniuses who really know how to dive into the. They got they got yeah, something, you know. They got something. But really, they're probably probably just lucky. Again, like the coin flipping con- contest. So there's going to be there's a lot of people trying to make money in the markets, and some of them will be successful purely by chance. And part of me wonders about whether Warren Buffett is that. I was just about to ask you that. I was just about, what about Warren Buffett? Maybe he was a genius. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, well, the thing is, maybe he was, but the thing is, maybe he wasn't because he, once you get a certain level of success, you start transitioning to be a more cautious speculator or investor, I guess, technically. And I don't, I don't know. The thing is, the problem with this is that we can never truly know a lot of the time. Like if you want to take the philosophical skeptics stance, we would never know. We can't prove it one way or the other because we can't go back in time and alter it. But there will always be a winner in these kinds of events and they will always have an explanation of how they got there. But it's often just horseshit. (laughs) Okay, so the military, there's another example I had from the military from also from World War Two. I think the British started using something called the Brody helmet, which is kind of like a it's kind of like a soup bowl, a wide brim soup bowl that they put on their heads. Mm -hmm. And they noticed that suddenly there was a huge spike in head injuries in the field hospitals. And so they they thought as a result that these helmets were faulty. They thought, oh, shit, like these helmets are causing brain damage. But then it was actually pointed out that those people probably would have just been hit in the head by shrapnel or a bullet or something and then fallen dead. They wouldn't have come back. So it actually was a good sign that these injuries were going up. Right, right. And that's like the plane example of you would see more injuries on the planes that come back versus the one fatal Mm -hmm. injury of the ones that uh, got shot down. Yeah, they never came back. Music is another area of this where they say music today isn't as good as it was in the past. This is probably true for a lot of art. But the problem is... Who listens to one-hit wonders or maybe small shitty bands from the past? 
they don't. They just disappear. Right. So we always say music was better in the past. Yeah. Like Led Zeppelin was amazing. True. However, there was a bunch, there's tons of knockoffs that just faded into history that were similar to Zeppelin, but didn't quite reach their level of success. Yeah. And so we just listened to the, the very select ones. Whereas today we have the entire breadth of shitty and good, and we don't know what's going to survive. We don't know which ones are going to be regarded as the best. If you had to guess which music of today is going to survive, like some people say, none of it. It's all flash in the pan. Well, those people are just shallow minded, I think. <laughs> Could you think of something of today that might survive though? It's hard to know when you're in it. No, I don't think you can. I don't want to stake my uh, claim on any of that. I think honestly, I, I feel it's going to be more difficult or more varied because there's more music being produced today now than ever because exactly. it's, it's been more democratized. Yeah. But also we're all being siloed in a way that I, what the music I listen to, I might think is like super obvious and everyone should know them, but mm-hmm. you may have had never heard of them. Just like I didn't know old country road and I'm proud of that. Yeah. <laughs> I stake my claim. That's hilarious. People are going to be shocked that you have never heard of old, old town road, not old country road. It is, I'm not going to get into it. I basically, I, by Lil Nas X, Billy Ray Cyrus. I mean, that was the biggest, biggest hit of, I think 2019. First, again, we I li- we listen to our phones. We listen to our own specialized, our own catered stuff now. So why would it be surprising that I haven't heard something on the radio? Who listens to the radio anymore? Everyone. I mean, like we got Sirius XM. No, no they joking, don't. I'm Only joking. drivers. Only drivers listen to the radio. I know that. I know. Only some drivers still because most people, even older people are using their phones to, to stream stuff. I think radio is probably dying at the moment unless they move to podcasts. And with the boomers, they probably will completely disappear. A lot of them. Because like location-based radio, like we're defining that right now. If you're listening to this, then you already define that. You could be anywhere. Yes. You <laughs> so you don't need to be within radio broadcast. Defying radio. My point is, I think it'll be difficult to know if there will be anything because there won't be as huge of a cultural phenomenon. There's a bunch of shows that are amazing, have run for like 10 seasons. I've never heard of them because there's no central location anymore yeah. that we talk about these things, at least if you're out of school. And even then you're just going to be whatever your region happens to be into. But there's so much content that I don't know that mainstream culture is going to be as prominent anymore. I'm wondering what's going to happen to it. It's very interesting because I feel like it would have been very easy to predict that the Beatles and the Rolling Stones would be longstanding bands. It wouldn't have been. No, you don't think it would have been easy to predict back then? Not before they became like the Beatles mania. No. Well, no. I mean, at that time, the height of it. Once they hit like, okay, at the height of the success. But the thing is, who is at that, that level today that is so universally loved? In multiple countries, there is none. Uh, There's some that are... There's got to be someone. Who? There's got to be someone. Maybe Kanye? Kanye. But even him, it's not as nearly... Nobody has an audience like these people did. And part of that is also the economics of the system. Back then... You can only become famous, not because of the internet, obviously. You had to be famous by a large label picking you and backing you and your sound and really pushing it. Hmm. And the way they worked then is they basically cut up the demographics as, okay, this is like ages 10 to 15, female, we're going to say this is the band for that group. And then 16 to 20 for females, we're going to have this group. And they tried to keep them just so limited because then they'd only have to back maybe a handful of bands and they'd have most demographics under their, their umbrella. It'd be cheaper, right? More cost effective. Now it's, it's much more difficult. I guess maybe, maybe Billie Eilish, honestly, because she's seems to be really hitting the zeitgeist for that particular generation. Right. So maybe she'll be like the, the survivor in this kind of example where we look back and we say, she was great. Music was better back then. Well, that's what I'm saying. Like you're asking me what's going to stand. Yeah, I think maybe she could. It's hard hard to it, say. We're speaking in the realm of unknown unknowns, as as is the nature of this concept. So we'll leave it yeah. at that. Other other interesting ones. 
Um, I've only got one, two, three, four, five more examples. Oh, you have so many examples. Uh, so cats. Cats. I wanted. To, I had that on my screen right now. I wanted to ask you about that. I was just scrolling through the Wikipedia and be like, wait a minute. Oh, falling from six stories. It's. I, I, I need more information, I think. But basically, they believe that cats who fall from six stories or less come to the vet with more injuries. And so they believe that with the cats that fall from six floors or above and are brought in actually had fewer injuries or were injured less often, I How think. How is that possible? Well, basically, they died. Most of them died. And so I'm. I'm not sure if it means like the higher rates of injuries or the higher amount of injuries or the injuries sustained were greater. It was worded vaguely. I'm going to assume that the ones that fell from six stories or below were more likely to be brought in and thus seem to be hurt more frequently. That's what I'm seeing. It says right here, cats that die in falls are less likely to be brought to a veterinarian than injured cats. And thus, many yeah. of the cats killed in falls from higher buildings are not reported in studies on the subject. Yes, except it's just that the earlier part of that was worded vaguely. Yeah. Whatever. We'll, we'll assume it just means a higher rates. But also, I think if you think about it, there's probably not probably there are vastly more buildings six stories or less so cats are also likely to fall if they're going to fall out of that height or less the next one was i think from mine was uh child rearing child i like that word child rearing yeah yeah i like it too <laughs> uh raising children i i find it so frustrating talking to people about that because my stance is different than most, I think, but I've come across the phrase like I was spanked and I turned out fine. <laughs> and you can sub in for that, like whether they smoked, whether they were bullied, whether they didn't use a seatbelt, whether they had vaccinations. This reminds Sorry, me of smokers who, who lived to 90, like, well, my, my father smoked till he was 90 and he was fine. Yep, exactly. That would be a survivorship bias. Smokers, we know on average, do not live to that age. So, and I've had other people say like, this guy was really into health stuff. He was, he loved to take products and like he exercised every day and then he had a stroke. And it's like, so what's your point? Just give up and don't try. Yeah. Just everyone has an, a constant rate, whatever it is of specific things in your body breaking. The body's a really complex system. Yeah. Any complex system has more bottlenecks where if something breaks, it'll fall apart. Simple systems, less likely. And so speaking of speaking of uh, smoking or lung cancer, this just in, Rush Limbaugh died. I don't want to celebrate that, but I am also not upset. I only mention it because it just popped up on my news alerts. Like, why are you scrolling while we're doing this? What <laughs> What did he die of? Lung cancer. Oh, well, that's con convenient for the conversation, I guess. Well, okay. That sucks. Sorry to hear that. Um, it's unfortunate somebody died, although I will not miss his influence. Cultural influence, yes. Uh, and, and feel bad for the loss in the family. Yes. There we go. Our condolences. So uh, for child rearing, I just find it annoying because I was spanked and I turned out fine. It's like, okay, where is the clone of you that was not spanked and was in a more progressive family that would have spoken through these things? Where are they to compare to? I would hazard a guess that they would be more even balanced than them because it's been shown that off the top of my head, I remember seeing something recently that people who were spanked have a higher rate of um, addiction actually. Wow. Which... I don't know if that's because, I mean, you could, you could say it was because of spanking, but you could also say it's because of the conditions under which someone might be spanked. Correlation's not causation. Yeah. Yeah. They, they might be more likely to be, um, low income. 
They might be more likely to have emotional regulation issues, which cause the parents to spank them. Yeah. So there may be other variables that are correlated. Yeah. yeah. Other variables correlated to the spanking, which are not necessarily the, the spanking is the problem. So. Yeah. So if you don't like nuance, then you're going to really hate these podcasts because uh, a lot of time it's really hard to conclude anything. We, yeah, we, can't, <laughs> we can't conclude anything. We don't. What do we know? We don't know what the bleep. Please, do we know? please don't reference what I think you're going to reference. <laughs> okay. He was about to reference. I thought. Uh, what the bleep do we know? I did. I didn't hear it. It's a fake documentary that tries to rely on what's called the God of the Gaps. Basically, the areas that we don't understand, we attribute to something spiritual or religious in some sense. And so they try to use quantum mechanics to convince people that we can't really truly know anything. It's very postmodernist in that way. But the the document mockumentary, I should say, it actually is a recruitment video for a cult, apparently. So be careful of that. Watch it if you want to laugh at ridiculously sloppy thinking. But uh, be careful if the people you're watching it with are easily duped. <laughs> <laughs> so an area otherwise that is also for this is um, truth in advertising. So the claims made in advertisements might be using an audience that would actually be familiar with their product, thus having a higher chance of success. So they'd say nine out of 10 people use this product. Fine. It's great. But that'd be nine out of 10 people who are familiar with that field and capable of using it. If we go to the broader audience, just random people, it might be four out of 10 that are satisfied mm -hmm. because they don't know how to use this product. And so that can get some advertisers in trouble. Apparently, eHarmony was one of the companies that did this. They claim to have a higher rate of success because of their algorithm, magic in their algorithm. That's what they claim. But apparently it's actually because they have a bunch of screening tests. They find people with high desirable traits are more likely to have a committed relationship. They keep them and they discard the rest. They tell them basically that they can't use them, I think, or that they won't they won't get it. Then they use those people to match with other people with similar commitment traits and their rate of commitment goes up, obviously. And then also they don't get in trouble because the times when companies do get in trouble for this is when they get they make them pay a fee that they do not refund. Wow. For eHarmony, they just cost time and effort. They don't charge them for the assessment. Overall, not bad. Uh, it seems like they're worth going for if you're looking to get married. And finally, education. Uh, this one I found interesting and will probably infuriate a lot of people. For education, it seems like class sizes actually has very little to do with educational outcomes. I think it was in the single digit percentage influence, but parents, I think, had a greater influence based on their own academic achievements. I think that was 10 to 20 percent. can't remember the exact number. But overall, it seems like elite schools have very little outcome, very little difference in the outcome of the students that go there. Basically, it seems like elite schools themselves are a survivorship bias. The people in elite schools are already people who are going to perform well, regardless of where they went to school, and we're just collecting them together. Wow. The best argument for elite schools, if you think it's worth it, is that they will have a better social ecosystem. So maybe they'll have chances to network there in exactly. ways that they otherwise wouldn't be able to. It's almost like the eHarmony example of it, it filters in a select group of people who are more likely to find to want to find a match in the same way that the school is filtering in a certain demographic of people. And so it, the conclusion of, oh, this this has some magic sauce in it that that nobody else knows about is is perhaps faulty. But the benefit is exactly that, the networking ability in both the dating uh, app area versus the school area where you, you can be in that environment and more likely to seed, succeed, not because you were just filtered in, but because you're more likely to also network with other people uh, who are like you and, and therefore it's compounding effect. Yes. I think for elite schools, it was only like 5%. It does actually help a bit, but like, are you going to pay university tuition rates of costs per year to have your kid go to a higher elementary school or high school? That doesn't seem worth it to me. 
there's a great book on this. It's on behavioral genetics, how genetics basically influence what happens in a lot of shocking and eye-opening results. The book's called um, Blueprints, and I think it's by Robert Plomsky, I think his name is. Another one I wanted to mention, the last one, is testimonials. You should always disregard testimonials. Aren't testimonials the most solid form of research? Shut up. (laughs) So testimonials are basically the takeaway. I'm going to use them as an example for the conclusion here. Let's do it. To avoid succumbing to the survivorship bias, we need to ask questions like, what are we not being told or what is not being reported here? And is there a chance that there is a huge, just random factor being influencing all of this and this person just happened to make it to the top? Just because someone is successful does not mean they earned it. (laughs) That is important to remember. So with testimonials, as an example, you hear somebody say this product is great and it's on the website for the for the product. Don't trust it because of, say, 100 people used it, 99 hated it and they told the producer that they hated it. They're not going to publish that. They're only going to publish the positive ones. So they're going to cherry pick the data. So, Mm -hmm. again, ask questions. Is there any way that this could be brought about through chance? And what are the chances that you could actually figure out how to do this? Likewise, another takeaway, add addendum to this. For games of chance, if you want to figure out if something is entirely chance, think whether you can purposely lose or purposely fail at it. Mm. If it's not possible to do that, then there's no skill involved. If it's hard to do, to fail on purpose, then there's some skill, but maybe still a big factor of chance. Do you have anything you want to add? Yeah, I just, I just thought of the game of like trouble, you know, that or any kind of dice games where yeah. you get a certain number and you move that many spaces. Yeah. Like if you wanted to purposely lose on a dice game or, or some kind of board game like that, you really couldn't. No. And so that's a really nice way to think of these things is can I purposely lose? But I think the other bigger takeaway here is what am I not being told? What do I not yes. know here? I think that's that's kind of the big thing. Exactly. What what are they not telling us? Yeah. What are they not? <laughs> the unknown us? unknowns, as you're saying. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. So I think that's a good enough place to stop. So thank you for tuning in and staying with us. And uh, yeah, we'd love to hear from you. So we will have the show notes and ways to contact us. See you next time. And then we're going to have a bunch of stupid little things inserted here. They got something. Recording. Good and warm. Toasty. Tap, tap, tapping on your brain.